And a warm welcome to Afternoons with uh, me. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad that you uh, are spending this time with me. Thank you for doing that. It means a lot to me. I look forward to this time together with you. And uh, I hope your day is going well. Uh, the week's gone fast. I can't believe it's Thursday already. Already Thursday. So uh, weekends ahead and um, this amazing uh, God that we serve and love is, is his love is is right here for you today. So if you need to hear from him, I, I hope you are hearing from me that God loves you and cares about you and he wants to meet you in your time of suffering and need. So uh, I also have a psychologist with me today. And if you are having some suffering or need uh, or a personal issue or something that's been troubling you, I bet he would be able to help. Uh, Dr. Andy Scudinga is with me. He is a professor of psychology at North Central uh, University here in the Twin Cities. And I would be more than happy to ask any questions you might have. Uh, and you can just send me a text at 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. As I was getting ready for my time with Andy today, I wrote down some words. Uh, I wrote down the word doubt, the word trauma, the word disbelief, and the word wonder. And then I also added anxiety at the very last because those seem to be words that pop up quite often in a psychologist's office. Not that he does private practice, but he teaches, but he can answer just about anything you have. So again, 877-933-2484. Andy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. So how was I with that introduction of you? Is it Pretty accurate, yeah, yeah. Because you're pretty a, generous. You're a professor and a teacher, right? Yeah. You don't have office hours, do you? Um, not like you? Uh, not treatment office hours. Yeah. No, I don't see clients or anything like that. Yeah, but I do talk to a lot of students. Yeah, which is good. And interestingly enough, I had a question that came in from a listener last hour. I might even spring this one on you because I found it to be very interesting, mm-hmm. and I thought the guys handled it well. But it was uh, relative to uh, not necessarily having a lot of friends her age. I don't know if you heard that. On the previous hour. I did not. Yeah. Uh, she said, my best friends are my grandparents and my parents, which means that my best friends are at least 25 years my senior. <laughs> so I have a hard time relating to people my age. I'm in my late 20s. Any advice for how I can view my peers with grace and humble myself to relate to them even when I don't want to? I think the answer is right there in the question, actually. What is what? Well, I like what your listener said about um, humbling she said herself or himself. Yeah, humbling herself. Humbling yeah, herself. With grace, yeah, to relate to them even when I don't want to. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. I mean, that's such a significant idea right now in general, just being graceful with other people, showing grace. Yeah. There's, you know, we are in probably the most formative year of the next century, mm. right? 70 years from now, they're going to look back at 2020 and say, remember or remember what happened in 2020, so on and so forth. It's a huge deal, and Christians have to make our mark in the world by being graceful with all the polarization of no government kidding. and all that other kind of stuff. But back to the actual question, I think showing grace to people your age, it sounds like maybe there's some, I don't know, feelings of judgment toward people her age, like these millennials, because if you're in the late 20s, you're probably a late-end millennial. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some frustration with peers uh, that's in place. I would say a good way to deal with that is just to get to know your peers and maybe understand where they're coming from. Maybe if you're that close to your grandparents and parents, you appreciate their wisdom and experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be an opportunity to gain wisdom and experience from people your age, too. Just 
maybe ask them different kinds of questions. Maybe try to get to know other people from their spot. Maybe if they're not believers, um, maybe if there are believers who came from a totally different background, just putting yourself in their shoes a little bit more could be something very helpful. Um, all right. So I think Paul says in, in evil be infants, but in understanding be men. So there comes a point in our brains where we have to say, I have to, I have to be, I have to grow up. I have to be mature. Yeah. So are you mature when you act mature? Is that when you become mature? When you start acting mature? <laughs> and is you it know, mature or mature? I never know which one it is. I always say mature, but... Um, I, think I, I think I say that too, mature. That's usually how I pronounce it, but hey, I could be wrong about something like that. It's kind of a chicken or the egg type <laughs> of question. I know it is. That's why I asked Isn't you. it? Well, I've said this on the show before. Sometimes when it comes to wanting to change a behavior, you, 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 a good idea is to fake it until you make it. Mm. Right. You know, if you studies have proven over and over again that when people make an effort to be nicer to those they dislike, they start to like them more. That's a good point. Um, and so as you get to know people at, you know, going back to the last caller, if you're if you're getting to know if you find people that you, you don't care for people your age that much because of certain things, pretend like you do start to get to know them more, start to like them more. And you might see some. You might see some different results. Mm-hmm. I guess in First Corinthians, Andy fourteen twenty, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. Be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Yeah, the f- the very interesting thing here is that our brains develop pretty slowly, actually, and your frontal lobe, which houses the executive function of your brain, mm-hmm. so the highest ordered thinking that we have is in the frontal lobe, right, right behind your eyes, right above your eyes, behind your forehead. Mm-hmm. That isn't fully developed in humans until we're about 25 years old. So when you talk about teenagers and you think, why do teenagers do so many dumb things? Well, it, because <laughs> I can't help the it. decision-making <laughs> function of their brain isn't fully formed yet. And so even people in their early to mid-20s are still putting those pieces together. Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't mean we should just excuse every foolish behavior that young people do. And we've all been in those shoes at some point. And it doesn't excuse a 45-year-old of doing foolish things right. either. But it does give us a little bit of a break to say, hey, okay, I can understand why college students act this way or why early teens or late teens act this way. Mm-hmm. It, it's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. Yeah. So if you want to encourage uh, a formation of this frontal this frontal um, lobe of, a, of your teenager's brain, mm-hmm. is it important to bring into their world consequences and then make sure they live those consequences out and you don't let them off the hook. Yeah, absolutely. The most effective parenting model is authoritarian, not authoritative. Sorry, is authoritative, not authoritarian. Um, Authoritative parenting is the type of parenting where, let's say your son or your daughter calls you at 17 years old, they call you at 11.45, curfew's at 12. And they say, there's something wrong with the car. I'm at my friend's house and I can't get it to start, right? Uh, so I'm going to be late. I don't mm-hmm. know why the car isn't starting. Maybe dead battery, whatever. An authoritative parent says, okay, tell me what happened. Get some information. It's it's fine. Don't worry about curfew. Just get home when you can. Or do you need me to pick you up? You know, let's be helpful about this. Maybe you should have planned ahead, that type of conversation. An authoritarian parent says, oh, I don't care. You need to be home at 12, if you don't get home on time, that's your problem. You're still going to have a punishment, mm-hmm. right? Your kid's not going to learn a whole lot from that other than, well, 
okay, there's not a whole lot of grace and forgiveness here. Right. An authoritative parent can explain that, talk about maybe different choices ahead of time. Because part of the consequence is that nervous feeling of I'm not going to be home for curfew. Or I ruin the car, which would probably be far worse. Right? And so as as parents, we can instill learning through our kids without necessarily having to punish it into them. But you you teach it to them, but yet there's still consequences when they just don't come home for curfew. You, you hold them accountable for that, but you take context into okay. your decision. Andy, get ready for this next question. This is an interesting one. I love it. Here's a, a listener that says, every time I pray out loud, I start to cry. doesn't matter if I'm praying for a homeless person or someone going into surgery or over dinner with family. My voice cracks and I could start to cry. Why does this happen? It's kind of embarrassing. I get through the prayer, but now without a frog in my throat. That is, that's a fascinating question. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Listener, I, I don't have a super great answer for you on that one. Okay. But I would say this. Ask yourself some questions like, first of all, why, why do you think you do that? Is it, you know, is it embarrassment? Is it just the fact that you're feeling emotional about what you're praying for or fra- praying about. And it just, by saying it out loud, it makes it more real. That, that could be an issue I mean, or not even an issue. It could be the cause. Um, boy, I don't, I got to say, I'm a little, I'm a little stumped by that. Well, I'm wondering if there's such a in- incredible sensitivity in, in, the, in her spirit <clears throat> and, the, and the Holy Spirit is just touching her in a way that's just so sweet as you pray for a homeless person or someone going into surgery or even, the gratitude that's pouring out of her heart over a, a, a family dinner yeah, and the way God provides. Maybe it's just so overwhelming all the time. I, 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 get, I, get, I get her. I get this comment yeah. a lot. Uh, I do. I mean, I've, I've had that happen to myself where, yeah, suddenly you, you're praying for somebody or something. And even if it's not allowed, I've, I've had, you know, an overwhelming sense of emotion that comes with that. And I would say this to you, caller or, or listener, I guess you didn't really call texture um <laughs> you know don't if it's not causing you problems don't don't worry about it yeah. you know if, if your family's like freaking out or your friends are like what is wrong what's wrong with you if they're understanding and you're just getting emotional while you're praying for someone i i really don't think there's anything wrong with that i think it's very sweet yeah i know rebecca's got a comment she'd like to throw in oh sure uh, <laughs> i was just writing silent notes to bill and throwing them at him uh but i was thinking of of hannah's reaction when she wanted a son she wanted a child and right. and she throws herself down in prayer and she's praying so fervently that the high priest doesn't get it and he says basically like lady are you drunk like, because she's That's so right. fervent in this prayer and so he didn't he didn't quite get it didn't understand and she explains it but god hears her heart and hears her request so maybe that's the important part and and I love what you were saying, Andy. So hopefully people are understanding about it. But I think a sensitivity to God in prayer is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so hopefully you're not worried about what other people think, you know, as much as you are about the conversation you're having with God and that he hears your heart. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I love when listeners encourage other listeners because a listener named Lynn said, I believe it is the Holy Spirit at work. And I would I would uh, agree with Lynn. Yeah, I'm not going to agree with that. Yeah. So so far, so good, Andy. We're off to a good start. Um, Dr. Andy Scuddinga is my guest, and if you have a question or you have something that's you've been thinking about for a while, and it has to do with uh, your brain, your your psychology, your psychological issues or concerns, uh, let me know what it is. I'll ask on your behalf. You can remain anonymous. Eight seven seven nine three three 
psychology professor at North Central uh, University here in the Twin Cities. And we're open to uh, hearing any concern you might have or any question you'd like uh, us to uh, kick around. I mean, when I say that, I mean Andy, not me. Um, Call came in, and there's (laughs) a a little bit of sibling rivalry where one uh, sibling has an idea and executes it, and and then the other sibling a, a week later will act as if the idea was hers, and it's the same thing she wants to do, and it kind of feels like, well, that was kind of my idea. So I don't know if that's an admiration thing or uh, how do you, how would you address that issue? It sounds like it might be aggravating a little. Yeah, it sounded like it. I I would probably recommend, like many things, taking the hardest route, which is having a conversation with your sibling and talking about not in you make me feel or you do this, you do that, but using the simple I language, I feel... You know, whatever you're feeling when when you do this, maybe it's I don't like it or I feel uncomfortable or I feel annoyed or I feel sad. You know, whatever your feeling is, I would go to your sibling and just start with that. When you when you do this, I feel this or I feel bad or I feel anxious or upset when you copy me or when you take my ideas and use them as their own. I don't mind that you do, but at the very least, give me some credit for it. Mm. Or, you know, if it's an admiration thing, that's that's a different story. But what if she gets defensive and hurts her feelings and you go, I'm not, not at the stage of life where I want to be necessarily hurting my siblings' feelings. That's a tough one. Then, well, then then the other choice is to not do anything mm-hmm. about it and just make it okay with yourself. Good point. And, you know, maybe sometimes you do have to stand up for yourself and say, no, actually, that was my idea. But what would you, you know, you have to do a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. What What would be the cost of me confronting my sibling with this and what would be the gain? Is it, is it worth it? If it's something that's been going on for 30 years, man, I don't, I don't know if that's worth it or not. Mm-hmm. Because if you've been dealing with it for that long, you're obviously a pretty tolerant person and you've probably figured out some ways to, to handle it that are healthy mm-hmm. and effective. You still have a relationship, so that's a good piece. But is it worth damaging that for the, for the gain in the end? Mm-hmm. So Andy, God basically says, I love you just the way you are and I insist you change, right? Yeah. Yeah. So why is the status quo so alluring to so many people? Because it's easy. I get that, but come on. Right? Yeah, because it's easy and it's secure. Is it easy? It is because I think a lot of people are paralyzed into inaction when they need to change something because... It A, takes hard work, or B, they're very afraid of what will happen if their life changes mm-hmm. or if they change. A lot of failure to change is born out of insecurity of what could be because it's an unknown. What I do know, you know, hypothetically speaking, what I do know is that if I continue to act like this, 
at least I know my friends handle it this way. I know my family reacts this way, and I know my my spouse or my kids react this way. And while it's not ideal, it's safe. But what if I give this up, or what if I change this? What will become of me? Will people like me anymore? Will I still communicate as well? Will I be accepted for this new person? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge barrier for change for a lot of people is fear of what they become. Even though we might promise it'll be better, trust me. It'll mm-hmm. be better if you do this. Well, how do you know is always the question. Mm-hmm. What about just the uh, the illusion of control? Is that part of what's, why status quo is, like, at least I know what's going to happen if I stay here. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill, because you can, when you when you can kind of predict what other people are going to do around you, then mm-hmm. you still have some control over the situation. And control is very, very important to many, many people. Not not all people. Some mm-hmm. people are very okay with not having control over anything. They're, you know, they're super flexible. I've never met that person. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple out there. Okay, good. Um, Please call me. There's like, like seven. Yeah. Maybe maybe eight. Not in all of Minnesota, though. They're all over the country, no, right? No, there's like, there's like two here, I think. Um <laughs> Well, yeah, control, <laughs> control, control. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal for a lot of people, and giving up control is a lot harder than hanging on to mm-hmm. control. So, how do we cut loose from our old certainties? We think they're certain, but they're not. I mean, right? It takes courage. Yeah, I mean, it's a step of faith. I mean, from a believer's perspective, it's it's a step of faith. You have to trust God that he has a better plan for you than what you're doing right now. Then whatever is causing you issues and you're hesitant to change it, you have to trust that God has a better plan for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes it takes courage. Now, it it's really hard for even a spouse to go to his or her spouse and say, I've done this or I've been this way and I'm sorry and I'm going to change. I mean, even for people who've been married for a long time, that's that's hard to do mm-hmm. because first you have to admit, you know, you have a problem or you've made mistakes or you've done wrong. Sometimes people know it and sometimes they don't and you might surprise them. Hey, look, I've been doing this for a long time. Whatever it is could could be anything that we could be talking about, right? But that that first step is is really challenging, but it's often the most freeing piece for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. If you do want to make a change, is it best to tell that other person that you're planning to do it, or should you just start doing it? I think it's better to tell someone. Okay. There are studies out there that when people want to make change in their life, whether it's spiritual, physical, you know, I want to lose weight, I want to... I want to gain weight, you know, I want to get muscle, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to be a nicer person, I want to be more forgiving. Studies show that when you tell somebody else what your plan is, you're more likely to carry it through because there's somebody out there to hold you accountable. Interesting. But don't you get that old, don't promise, just prove with people? Uh, I've heard that before. Here comes the eye roll. Then all of a sudden you feel a little bit defeated versus, you know, I know I've been noticing this lately. This is really, I'm amazed to how... What you've improved. Yeah, sure. People like to daydream about that. (laughs) Like, you know, they're sitting in their car. You're driving home right now. You're like, man, if my, you know, if if I lost this 25 pounds, my wife would think that you look so good. And and she'll tell me, I can't believe you lost all this weight. Yeah, that's going to be great. And then you go home and you eat a hamburger and fries, and then you eat your kid's hamburger that's left over. Mm -hmm. And And their fries. Yeah, and their fries. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like, 
well, maybe tomorrow. You know? <laughs> but if you go to your wife and, you know, and I'm not telling all you dudes out there you got to lose weight. This is just an example. Yeah, you're not being judgmental. No, not okay. at all. But if you, because I did this once, right? So <laughs> if you say, well, no, in my mid-30s, my metabolism went from like 90 to 7. Okay. And, Overnight? Uh, yeah, 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 and I couldn't eat ice cream every night anymore. <laughs> so my my doctor, I was like, "What's happening to me?" And so he explained it, and I was like, "Okay." So what do I do? He said, "We'll start exercising more." So I went home and I told my wife, "I'm going to train for a 5K." Mm-hmm. She's like, "Okay, runner, um, that's great, right?" Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? But because I told her that, I knew I could not. I wasn't worried about letting her down. But I knew that she would remind me, and I knew, and I wanted her to be on me for that. Mm-hmm. So I started, and I was, I, I did the 5K, and I won my age division. You did? Well, I was the only guy in the okay. age division. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great day. But I did it because someone, I knew someone was paying attention to me. Okay. And I told a couple friends, and they knew that I was going to be doing this. And they asked me, on their own, not, I didn't ask them to, can you they asked me, are you doing it? Are you, how's your running coming? And I'm telling you, listeners, it doesn't matter what you want to change. When you invite someone into that process with you, you'll do it better than when you do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my friend Patrick says said to me, it doesn't matter how much ice cream I eat, I can't seem to get rid of these love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Patrick, it matters. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, it matters. It does, yeah. All right, uh, we've got time uh, for lots of uh, questions. If you have got anything you'd like to uh, have Andy uh, talk about, let us know what it is. It's 877-933-2484. I've got a question here, but I probably don't have enough time. But what I wrote down, Andy, uh, just getting ready for today, because I didn't know, um, I I wrote down four or five words. Now I've already lost them, so that's not very helpful. Wonder. Uh, that was one. Yeah, that wonder. You know, why Why do we... Here they are. Trauma. Doubt, 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 trauma, disbelief, and wonder. And I want to talk a little bit closer in the next uh, half hour about why we have the sense of wonder and why does it go away as we get older? And does it ever come back? And, and what happens in our brains? I mean, nuts. You know, as far as what happens in our brains when it comes Don't to answer wonder... Now. Oh, don't answer no, now? No, oh, okay. No, because we're, we're saving that for after the break. Oh, we have a break. Along with up. other things, yeah. Well, I didn't hear the exit music yet. You hear so. it now, don't you? Barely. Turn it's it jazz. up, Rebecca. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, okay, good. Dr. Yeah. Andy Scudding is my guest. Again, 877-933-2484.
So glad to have Dr. Andy Scudinger with me today. He's a professor of psychology at North Central University here in the Twin Cities. Some great questions coming in from listeners. Here's one. Andy, does the devil know my thoughts, doubts, and fears? Or does the evil one simply observe actions? I think it's uh, part two. I'm not sure the devil has access to your thoughts, but he certainly can see what you're doing and how you react and what we are insecure about. Insecurity is kind of easy to read sometimes, Mm -hmm. sometimes not. Um, But I think the enemy uses all kinds of tools like that. Um, I, I think one of the greatest tools he has is social media. You know, people are constantly talking about the insecurity that they feel from online posts from uh, what they see in ads and TV shows and whatnot, comments in their blog or their Instagram or mm-hmm. whatever. And yeah, how you respond to those things sends a message. And I think the devil takes advantage of that kind of stuff all the time. Okay. Another question from a listener. After almost 40 years, my wife still has a hard time with me expecting her to do what she says she is going to do. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's up with that? I told her today that I was going to take all expectations off the table. She said that makes her feel very sad. Hmm. So if you said to me, uh, you know, you're going to do something and I go, eh, whatever. I have a hard time with that, expecting you to do that. I think this is what's been going on after 40 years. After 40 years, that's going to be, that's going to be challenging to change. Mm Mm-hmm. I would I would tell the caller, well I'm going to call her I would or text her I would say maybe maybe that's not something that you should expect to change at this point. Is kind of going back to that thing we talked about earlier, is that change going to be is it going to be worth it? Do you desire that change very badly? If you do then you need to keep talking about it and keep working through it. Let's talk through this a little bit more clearly because I don't I hope we have have this understood correctly. Yeah. So the wife will say what she's hoping to do. Okay. All right. I think that's how it. And is. he expects her to follow through on that. Well, is that how you read it? She has a hard time with me expecting her to do what she says she's going to do. So I have a hard. He has a hard time. She says she's going to do something. He has a hard time expecting her to do it. Hmm. That, that's what I'm. That's what I'm understanding. I, yeah. hope, I hope I have that right. So anyway, he was probably trying to be gracious, saying, look, I'm just going to take expectations off the table. And she didn't like that because I think she wants him to have expectations. She wants him to hold her accountable and support her. That would be my guess. But if she doesn't do that and has a long history of not following through, that would be very challenging. It would be tough. And maybe he is throwing her a pretty big olive branch here and saying, look, okay, I won't won't expect these things of you anymore. Mm -hmm. I'll just, just do what you need to do. It, that's a hard question because, you know, there's so much context in there. That's, there's 40 years of history know, to go through. I know. And is this something that's been, you know, the entirety of their marriage? Is it something that's five years new? Um, yeah, that's that's a, diffi- that's a difficult one yeah. to, to answer and really of course, well. When, Sorry. when he says he's taking all expectations off the table, we don't know his tone. Right. You know, it could be very gracious and loving or sure. it could feel a little bit edgy. Yeah, could be very angry. Could be I'm tired of dealing with this. Fine. No expectations on the table anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, you hard did that well. To, hard to say. <laughs> you, you do anger well. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was, I'm kidding. In, I, I was in two plays in high school. So. All right. There you go. You are an actor. All right. Oh, yeah. Question. Um, five-year-old granddaughter suddenly has anxiety issues, crying mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, et cetera. 
What can parents do to help? Suggested play therapy, but COVID clamped down on that. I don't, I don't know if you need play therapy. Um, I would start by wondering, this, this is only anxiety at night. Can, can, you read the, can you read that one more time? Yes. Um, Please. My uh, five-year-old granddaughter mm-hmm. suddenly has anxiety issues, crying in the middle of the night, etc. What can parents do to help? Su- okay. There was suggested play therapy, but COVID has damped down on, uh, cramp, clamped down on that. Yeah, sure. Well, I would want to know what, what is she specifically anxious about? It's, it's, it's a little bit unusual for five-year-olds to exhibit significant anxiety, um, unless they've had something traumatic happen. Um, usually kids don't just suddenly start being anxious. And at five years old, what does that even sound like? You know, what, what, you know, what is the grandma talking about with anxiety? Is she full of fear? Is this only happening at night? Some kids have night terrors and, uh, there's not much you can actually do about that other Mm -hmm. than wake up, come for the child and go back to bed. Um, but if she's feeling scared suddenly, my my guess would be that there's probably something has happened to her, something that scared her. Um, could be something very serious. It could be something very mild. You know, maybe a you know, maybe a raccoon ran out of a tree and scared her really badly in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe something much more uh, dramatic happened to her than that. Um, but I would, you know, encourage the parents to talk to her and find out what it is that's bothering her. And there's lots of ways to do that. You could do that through play. I mean, you could play with your child mm-hmm. and ask some questions. Uh, you know, you could you could get, um, sounds like it's a little girl. So if you have action figures or dolls or, you know, whatever your daughter likes to play with that have characters, maybe start asking questions through the characters. That's what play therapy is in a sense. You mm-hmm. allow the child to play out uh, in front of you what's going on. So maybe you can say, if you were if you were scared about something, what would it be? You know, maybe have one toy, ask that to the other toy and let the little girl answer for the other toy. There's ways to do that. There's, okay. there's a lot of ways to pull out what's bothering kids without saying, what's wrong with you? What's bothering you? Because mm-hmm. they may not know how to even answer that question. Mm-hmm. The uh, caller, uh, the texter about the 40-year marriage. Yeah. Um, he did add in to the mix. She, uh, she does fight support. And he says, I'll keep working until Jesus comes. I was trying to be gracious to her. I love her in spite of it. And that's awesome, man. Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes just... Loving your spouse, your friend, your child, your parent, that causes you a lot of frustration and anxiety. Sometimes it is simply the best thing to do is just to love them and do the best that you can mm-hmm. and support them. And you may never be rewarded on earth for all of that work. Mm-hmm. But if you love that person, I know, I know you're going to be doing the best that you can. All right. Andy, in first Peter chapter three, verse nine, uh, it says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, rep- repay evil with blessing, because to do this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Um, how? It's it's not in our brain to repay evil with a blessing, is it? We're, Probably That's got to be a God thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's a sinful nature type of thing. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Because, yeah, I don't... There's probably not a single, there, there isn't, there's not a single location in your brain where we've identified that, you know, empathy resides. It's, it's in multiple places, much like almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and repaying evil with evil is often probably more appealing and more fun. You know, we all, 
nobody out there can say they've never had feelings of revenge that they would like to take on somebody who's wronged them. I'd love to see them get theirs. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I've I've had that many times. In fact, that's probably more my default to think that way. Well, don't worry. You'll you'll get yours back when you've done something bad like that. Um, but the you know the caller's right. The the best thing that we can do is yeah, take the high road and treat other people in that situation as Christ would. Um, not necessarily always turning the other cheek, but yeah, replaying evil with a blessing or even evil with civility yeah. is, is often a blessing. You know, I don't think you have to volunteer to wash somebody's feet after they've wronged you. Right. That's probably too extreme for people who you're not close with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we can we can say, oh, okay, you know, I'll move past that and I'm still going to treat you with grace even though you've really made me upset. Mm-hmm. That's hard to that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Anybody who finds that easy to do is probably doing it wrong. Yeah. I know there's been um, a lot of traumatic things that have happened in most everyone's life. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, is it so. safe to say three to ten things that would go under the traumatic category? I'm just, I think I'm just that's taking a stab fair, at this. Actually. Yeah, I, I, I've never thought about it in a numbers term like that. But And we have to be careful to be open to lots of ideas of what traumatic is. You know, being left out of something can be very traumatic for someone. Mm-hmm. Whereas another person might say, "Who cares? I didn't even want to go anyway." <laughs> right. What are you? What are you so worried about? Why would we even want to go? Well, because my friends went, mm-hmm. and all my friends went, and I got left out. That that could be very traumatic, especially for a teenager or a middle schooler or or a young kid. But you know what? That's sometimes traumatic for somebody who's thirty five. Um, a trauma could be. You know, being hit by a car and spending six months in the hospital, that's traumatic, that right? Very traumatic. Sexual abuse is traumatic. Very. Physical abuse is traumatic. Um, and so sometimes we we're, we might be quick to say, well, that that's not really traumatic. You weren't sexually abused. You were You were left out. You felt lonely. That's different. Well, we have to be very careful judging what levels of trauma are for people. If it's traumatic for them, it's, it's traumatic and it will have a long-term effect if it's not dealt with in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So if we've got some images that are in that memory bank that always remain somewhat sharp because they might be 20, 30, 40, 60 years old, um, is there any uh, effort we can make to diminish those and and pray them into a diminished state where they don't have any power or weight anymore? Yeah. Prayer is definitely a a piece of that. Um, That almost sounds a little bit like PTSD where... It does. You know, the best... The best treatments for PTSD usually involve revisiting the scene of the trauma. Oh boy! So, not not physically. Yeah, Sorry, no, let me I know. let me clear. Yeah, it's you know, like you're not going to send a war veteran back to Iraq or Afghanistan yeah. to go stand at the spot where they had a significant injury. You know, that's that's not a wise choice. However, a lot of PTSD healing training is about revisiting in your mind enough times so that when it does pop into your mental existence, when you're having a traumatic moment relived again, when you've processed it enough and visited it enough, it doesn't become as scary or as detrimental to your thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it, like a, like a little kid gets terribly scared by a big dog, for example. Mm-hmm. 
you don't just bring the kid right back and put the kid inside the fence with the scary dog. <laughs> you know, that's right. that's desensitization. That's like flooding. That's yeah. that's not a great way to do it. But it does work, but it's it's not very fun and it's not very effective, but it but it can be. You know, you slowly reintroduce the traumatic event until the client, you know, literally if you're working with somebody who's a patient, you work with a client until they get to a point where they can comfortably think about the traumatic event and then kind of put it into an appropriate box in their mind. Not one that's you jam it in there and shut the door and sit on it and lock it with five locks. You, that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You want to get to the point where when it comes in your mind, you have a trigger, you're in control. When we go back to that idea of control. You're in control of the memory now and you put it where it needs to go because you've dealt with it. All right, Dr. Annie Scuttinga is my guest. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we certainly have time for another question, comment, or concern that you might have. 877-93-FAITH is the text line. 877-933-2484. Be right back. show i'm with dr andy scuttinga i like saying his name scuttinga you say it so well well i'm good at it now you are yeah takes about 30 30 attempts i I think i said scutinga at one point didn't i yeah i i forgot about it i'm very graceful you're forgiving too oh yeah i like that so we had the little addendum to our our caller with the five-year-old granddaughter apparently there was a a younger sibling born around the same time that she started having these uh, crying in the middle of the night issues and afraid of loud noises and that kind of things. Um, might the, the the addition to the family be part of that little breakdown? Uh, yeah, I would bet quite a bit on that. Okay. On that circumstance being a cause of, uh, of her, of her fears and anxiety, you know, it, when you hear that, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, just, you think about it for about a half a minute and you realize, of course, here's this little girl who was the center of her parents' world for five years. And maybe there's no other grandkids. Maybe this is the second grandkid. So you suddenly go from being the superstar to probably an afterthought. You know, we've, I'm an oldest sibling myself. I remember when my sister was born and I wasn't super excited about that. Um, there wasn't much else I remember. And Molly, if you're out there listening, I still love you very much <laughs> just to be very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's a really common response from from little kids who have a, a new sibling because now their order has been disrupted, you know their 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 lunch might be delayed because this other thing in their house is causing a problem. It's crying, it's whining, and so if the baby's getting lots of attention, which it obviously needs, now the five year olds needs have come into second place. So that, that's actually a really common issue. And what I would probably recommend, not probably, what I would recommend is. You know, maybe the parents. Hey, Grandma, if you're if you're pretty heavily involved here, let let Mom take the five year old out for lunch or something special. You know, that's a little tougher in in COVID right now, but let them do something special so it's just the two of them. Maybe she hasn't had a lot of time with her parents. Let Dad do the same thing. Dad, take 
take the daughter out, do something special together, let her know that she's still very special. She still matters just as much as that new baby. And and maybe the new baby has a, needs a lot more attention than most little kids do. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But just make sure that she knows she's still, she's not number one anymore. She's like one and, and one A or whatever. But just reassure her that her life is still going to be great, even with this new baby around the house. And let's see if that doesn't change things for the better. I like that. Good answer, Andy. Thanks. Yeah. So my f- my four words that I think I typed uh, was doubt, trauma, disbelief, and wonder. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just about eight or nine minutes left. I'd love to talk about wonder. We don't have to go anywhere specific with it. But when I think of the spinning sphere we're on called earth. Yeah. What is it spinning like a thousand miles an hour? Oh, it's super fast. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> and you think of the galaxy we're in and that's moving at about a million and a half miles an hour. Yeah. And we just kind of go, okay, whatever. Don't we, don't we stand in absolute wonder of what God has created and the fact that God loves us and left heaven to come to try to be close to us? Doesn't that just blow your mind? Do we not spend enough time wondering? I think we don't. Uh, you What's nailed it up right with there. that? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, this is a great, honestly, this is a great time in history to start paying attention to that sort of thing more. No kidding. You know, there's so much, there's so many negative things right now in the news. You know, you just check your news feed and everything is negative. Like they have a special box on my news feed <laughs> that says positive news. You're like, well, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, some of it's positive to me, you know, so it may not be as positive as others. But so last, uh, what was it, two weekends ago, we were, we went up north to visit some friends at their cabin on a, on a very small lake. It's very quiet and very dark. So my wife said, let's go look at the comet. And the kids were kind of like, oh, we have to go outside. There's mosquitoes. You know, there's four kids there. They're all teenagers. And they're like, okay, you know, the old people, the boomers want to go outside. And so we went out there. And I don't know if you saw the Neowise Comet. It was unbelievable. I mean, we we were in the dark. It was incredible. And all, all four kids were like, wow, this is amazing. And, you you know, like you mentioned earlier in one of the breaks, Little kids are full of wonder. They go to the zoo. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. taking Bill's example here, by the way, everyone. This was Bill's great example. You go to the root zoo when you're five, you see a giraffe, and you're like amazed. You go when you're 20, you're like, giraffe, I've seen 20 of those in my life. We should never lose that sense of wonder about mm-hmm. what's in the world. I mean, just look out your window if you're by a window. Like we're here, we're surrounded by these trees. Just think about these trees, how big they are, how fast they grew, how how they seed one another. It's It's incredible. We can just look in our backyard for inspiration for what's good in the world today. You don't have to watch the news all day. Just look out your window and embrace the flowers, embrace the birds that woke you up this morning. You might not have been happy about that, but man, they sound beautiful. Mm. You think of the needs of the world and the suffering and the pain. It's so extensive, right? Oh, yeah. So when you think about living with contentment, it almost sounds like a foreign idea to many. How can I be content with my problems, right? Right. But when you start to really and truly appreciate the very simple wonders of God's creation and beauty, and not to mention 
the fact that he loves us so much he sent Jesus to die for our sins. That's right. Can we not just sit and wonder at that and just have your heart be filled? Yeah. You know, I I have a pretty positive outlook on life. I, I'm fortunate. I I almost always see... Not always, but I almost always see the bright side of things. But not everybody's wired that way. And for those of you out there who, who you know who you are, you you know that you don't look at everything in a in a positive light all the time. And a lot of your life isn't. A lot of your life might not be positive. But I would still challenge you when you're starting to feel a kind of grungy feeling of life is pretty crappy right now. This the world is not doing well right now. Hey, you know what? There's there's plenty of things outside to go look at. That should make you feel better. And that's just God's creation. But you said it, Bill. It's Jesus came down and died for us. No kidding. And the world was a lot worse place 2,000 years ago than mm-hmm. it is today. Or maybe not. Hard, hard to say. It's probably just the same. Just different types of sins, different types of people committing them. Mm-hmm. But they're all about the same thing. Mm-hmm. In the end, we have a great God who made all of this amazing and wonderful stuff. When you read the first couple of chapters of Genesis and you see the creation of the world and how God spoke things into existence, and then at one point he said, I'm going to send my son so he can be close to you, so he can make a way for you to spend eternity with me and for the forgiveness of sins. If, you don't, if you're not in, in awe and wonderment over that daily, I think we're missing, missing beats here. Totally. Yeah. When you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling depressed, those, those things really do matter. They do make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And that, that lives deep inside your heart. And those are, those are thoughts that can't be destroyed. That's right. It's a never-ending I mean, wellspring. So many other things can be destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Your business can be destroyed. Your health sure. can be destroyed. You know, your, your loved relationships can be destroyed. The wonder of who God is and what he's done for you and the fact that you've got your name written in the book of life, if you know Jesus as your Savior, that's wonder. It feels pretty good, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> so, um, let's see. So, a listener just jumped in with some Christian therapists say boundaries are important while others indicate it's sort of ungodly. What do you think? I would completely disagree with anybody who said boundaries are ungodly. Okay. I, I do not disagree. I don't agree with that at all. I think boundaries are very important. Um, I was just having a conversation with a future colleague about boundaries in higher education, um, that boundaries are good. You know, you don't necessarily want college students calling at 1 a.m. when they have a question about their uh, upcoming test. You mm-hmm. know, boundary is I don't, I don't give my cell phone number to, to students. Because when I go home, I'm with my family, right. and the student is not in my family. And some people would say, "Oh, that's not very nice. That's kind of cold." Well, that's a boundary. That's a that's a good boundary. And there are so many people out there, Bill, who don't have good boundaries. Yeah, and they pay for it. Yeah, psychologically and with their mental health because mm-hmm. they can't say no, or they are afraid they're going to upset somebody, so they let someone walk all over them mm-hmm. instead of putting up a hand and saying no. I don't do that, yeah. and you can't do that to me. Let me squeeze this question in. I have suffered from adult attention deficit for years. I'm on medication but still have a racing brain. It affects my prayer life and Bible study. It's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I pray, asking for a clear thought process, but it's rare to experience freedom from my thoughts. How do I overcome this? 
I would honestly, I would say to you, embrace it. You may not be able to overcome that. That's that's something. If you're on medication and you've been and your medication's been managed for a long time, this where you're at right now might might be where you're at, mm-hmm. and and that might be where you stay. Um, and that's that's okay. Not everybody has to be a long term deep thinker. We were just talking about this not too long ago. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have the greatest attention span myself. You know, I can read for a while and my thoughts will race on to other things. Maybe some of those thoughts are really valuable. You should write them down. Um, if they're confusing to you, then you have to work on mastering those thoughts and getting back to what you're concentrating on. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you this, be okay with what you can do, with how much concentration you have. Be okay with that. And pray shorter. Read in shorter stints, yeah. knowing that you might lose that attention span. That's that's, that's okay. That's good counsel. There's Doctor, nothing wrong with that. Dr. Andy Scuttinga has been my guest. Andy, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Lots of fun. That wraps up our show for the day. I so appreciate you, uh, and thank you so much for listening, and thank you for supporting Faith Radio. I'm already excited about spending time with you tomorrow. Can't wait. Have a good night. See you then.